Welcome to episode 91 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. This episode, we're here with our producer, Sarah. Hi. And we're going to go through some of our favorite clips from the past year. We've got a few episodes of this. We want to take some time off to go celebrate. Uh, yeah, we wanted to take a couple weeks to just chill at the end of the year, celebrate with our families. We're all going to be traveling a little bit. So we put together some of our favorite clips from the year. These are all things that I've personally learned from. I don't know about you guys. Ditto. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we hope you enjoy. The next couple of weeks are going to be these kind of compilation episodes. Here we got two weeks, four episodes total. Four episodes total. Each one just clips uh, from the past year of things we've learned, things we've loved, and we hope you enjoy them. Before we get into the episode, I want to thank our, our sponsors for this show. First up, as always, Dropbox. Dropbox is the simplest way to work the way you want, uh, whether you're sketching, coding, prototyping, recording podcasts for a year. Uh, Dropbox is with you throughout the entire process. They handle everything. You can work with any kind of file. You're free to choose the tools you need for any project. And when you're ready for feedback, you can send large files to anyone fast. With the file previewer, you can play audio files, you can view sketch files, you can view Photoshop files without having to download megs or gigs of files. Uh, you can just view it right in their previewer. And their commenting feature gives you a central place to post your thoughts right in line. Uh, your entire team can be in there having the entire conversation right alongside the work itself. And Dropbox gives you the freedom to work on anything from anywhere with anyone you choose. You can get started at dropbox.com. Thank you once again to Dropbox. Our second sponsor is Wayno, the all dancing, all singing, fast growing, not quite bourgeois, not quite bohemian, full service digital agency doing amazing work in San Francisco and recently in their new office in New York. They're doing client work for companies like Airbnb, Medium, Google, Reuters, and of course, Dropbox, so you know their work is good. If you've been on Dribbble ever in your lifetime, I guarantee you've seen their work. It's wonderful. We love it, and we are so happy to have them support the podcast. What do they want? They want you to know that they're hiring. So if you need a job at truly one of the world's best agencies, go to wayno.co, that's U-E-N-O dot C-O, Click the careers link in the header, tell them that we sent you and get an amazing job. Uh, their last design hire was a listener as well. So definitely don't hesitate. Thank you so much to Wayno for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And let's get into this compilation end of year episode. Hi, Sarah. Hi, guys. Welcome to Design Details. Welcome to having me on Design Details. <laughs> Sarah, we start every episode by mm. asking our guests to, to introduce themselves yeah. in their own words. Do you, do you want to do that? I do, actually. Um, hey, everybody. My name is Sarah Jackson. I am the producer at Spec.fm or Spec.fm or Spec Network Inc. However you know us all, as. All of our various as our names. Le- yeah. Our brand's not really like washed out yet. Our legal entity. <laughs> Spet ne- Spec Network Inc. Whatever. All of Spet them. Network. Spet Network. I talk to people in different formats at different ways. It's all good. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so usually I'm on the opposite side of the microphone, um, so I'm the one in the back end doing all the like cutting and editing and mastering of the podcast, so it's interesting to be on this side of things, but I'm happy to be here. I've learned a lot from this last year being on the network, and I'm excited to contribute. You've listened to every episode of every show. At length, yeah. yeah not, not just this show, but all of our all like, show, yeah. five other sh- podcasts. Sometimes podcasts. multiple times, depending on what needs to be cut out. God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I like it. Cool. Well, we're going to talk about some of, uh, some of the clips from this past year that have been meaningful to us. 
Uh, the first one that we pulled out is from our episode with John Lax. Uh, we had him on the show a few months ago. It was one of the most popular shows we've ever done. So this clip I pulled from the John Lax episode, uh, episode 63 we did a few months ago. A very popular episode and a lot of fun to record. But this particular segment, John talks about his four criteria for evaluating work. So basically what he looks for. Uh, like what, what is good work? What is good work at, uh, as a designer presenting it, maybe in an interview or something like that. Uh, so I think it's really useful. I've sent it to people that are applying for jobs. Uh, basically just how you think of the things you're building. Are they useful to the world? Uh, and can they help you get jobs? Uh, so it's kind of a nice litmus test for the things you're building. What are those four things? We're about to find out. Mm. There were four tests that I always use when I think about work that we're working on. Mm -hmm. And I look ideally for work to kind of pass these four tests. So my first test is, you know, are you proud of it? Meaning the people who worked on it, would they stand up in a room of their peers and claim this work as their own? I think that's a really good test. If you ask any designers, like, are you proud of this work? Like, would you, would you display it? Would you? And I think that speaks to craft. Like, I think designers have a high quality bar generally. And if they're not satisfied, like if they're like, I would, I would never admit that I worked on this because I'm embarrassed by it. That's like, you know, that's bad. Right. Can I cut in on that? Yeah. Do you feel like there's a gray area where designers are the kinds of people who are very prone to see imperfections and like they might be proud of it, but yet they still see and know of all the flaws. I think it's okay to never be satisfied. I think that's an okay quality to have. I think you, if you go through your career and there's like, there's nothing here I'd admit to working on, I think either you need to take a hard look in the mirror or (laughs) you've been working in really bad places, right? Like it's, it's one of those two and a little moment, you know, have a little soft moment of introspection Mm -hmm. um, and try to figure out which one it is. So, you know, are you proud of it? Right. You know, would you stand up in a room of your peers and claim it as your own? But what, what if you're proud of something that you shouldn't be proud of? Like, well, you know, I think that, I think that um, this debate, which is like, is there such thing as bad design? My take, and there are people who who disagree, including I had this debate then with Daniel Burka from Google Ventures and Mike Davidson uh, at, at Twitter. My position is, is that I think that there's no such thing actually as quote unquote bad design, at least from an aesthetic standpoint. I think that it may not be something you like or that I like. There's nothing that's like, there's nothing objectively bad about it, right? So if you want to lay out something in Comic Sans, it's not, I don't think it's particularly good design, but if you do, and there might be some other individual, like another individual thinks, oh, that looks pretty good. I don't think that is objectively bad because I think that there's like this priesthood that there's all these rules and things like that is kind of insane, right? So I don't actually think there's anything that is objectively bad design. There's design I don't like, and there's design that I think is, is not great, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that someone else doesn't find it good. And so I don't have an issue. Now, the dissenting opinion to that is that there is such thing as bad design. So for example, a cockpit like is so error prone that the pilot crashes the plane. It's like bad design. That was Daniel Burke's argument. I'll give him credit for that. And I kind of was like, oh, okay, but the majority of us aren't designing cockpits, right? Like I think there are some scenarios where a bad decision makes something prone to error and that error can be catastrophic. Most of us just aren't building those types of that's things. That's bad right? QA. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think there is an argument that okay, well, that's bad design. Um, I think that, but when it comes to just aesthetic, 
I just don't think, I think it's just, it's just subjective. Yeah, right? it's very subjective. So, so I think that if, if there was a designer out there who says, I love all of the, everything I've done here, I think it's just amazing. And they were very happy. I'm like, okay, cool. I mean, you might not get a job at Facebook or you might not get a job <laughs> because we would just have a hard time saying, well, this is mapping to a quality that, that we have. It doesn't assimilate. Well, well, it doesn't, I, I wouldn't use the word assimilate. I think, I think that we have sort of collectively as a community of designers, at least at Facebook, we're, we're looking for a certain um, thing that we, that we think is of the quality that we're trying to bring to the community and mm-hmm. to the product, right? And someone who's like, oh, I love all of these things. It's like, okay, that's just not that good. Um, subjectively. Subjectively, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think that having said all that, I think that what designers are really great at is they have taste. Now, we all don't have the same taste, although sometimes when I go and dribble, I think we all have the same taste. But like, I actually think that, 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 <laughs> that, that um, you know, I think what designers have is taste. They're able to look at something that others won't and be like, oh, it should be a little bit like this. And people are like, oh yeah, that looks like, that seems dope. Like that seems better. But there is a lot of designers out there that are very, like have a lot of people who like their work. And I'm just like, eh, it's just not. Like, it's just not really me, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I, it, it doesn't map to my taste, but that doesn't mean it's bad. We're quick to judge sometimes. And, and it, that's not necessarily the healthiest thing. Um, so anyway, that's so, so proud of, proud of, are you proud of it? The next one is, does it get used? And that's a little easier to objectively mm-hmm. look at, right? I think that if you make things that have no usage, while you may be proud of it, it's probably not that good. Right. And, and I mean, this one self-selects for the previous one. Yeah, I mean, you can use those in... in so Got I it. love it. No one used it. Okay, well, I loved it. And, and I think that if you're doing something that just you love and no one uses, you're doing it for your own personal gratification, and that's cool. But if you're going to be commercializing it, it's not that cool. It's <laughs> not fact, a good product. It might be a good project. Not, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, and I think that, that if you put something into the world... And I always like... Um, I've told this story before, but I'm like... The thing that really got me into originally making websites, like what I got such a charge out of was like back in 1994 was like I made this web page and then I like the next day I went and looked at the the logs, right? Um, no Google Analytics back then. You would actually like open a text file and you'd look through it and I'd be like, oh shit, like 200 people like check this out. And the next day it's like, oh my God, 400 people check this out. And like, I've kind of been chasing that high ever since, right? Like I just love the concept. Like I made, like I worked on something and people like came and looked at it, right? And like that's, I think for a lot of us in the industry, especially the, the early days, like that's all we're doing. Like we're just like, pursuing that, that dopamine, <laughs> like that little you know, squirt of dopamine to be like, people actually like it. You know, it's like massive insecurities <laughs> and they were like, Oh wow, you like it. Um, and so I think that, that, you know, you want ideally something that gets used. And now how many people use it as a success metric? You don't need things that are at like Facebook scale for them to be successful, but you want some idea of like, Hey, I'm really happy that X number of people seem to get value out of this thing. Or, hey, I can make a number at X number of people using it. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty good metric. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I I think that that either one of those, right? Um, Another one is, I think it, you know, does it get talked about? I I, I don't want to focus too much on vanity metrics, but I think that if people are talking about it, and I do am implying in that positively, not not mm-hmm. negatively, but I think there's some combination of the two that's, that's net positive. Is this I mean, like I think, a buzz metric? I just think like, you know, you kind of know, I, I, Slack is a really good example of this, right? I just hear a lot of people talking about it. 
you okay. know, and, and I think that that's a good, I think that's net positive for that product. But a lot of people use it. A lot of people talk about it. A lot of people seem to love it. Right. I think that's just a net positive product. I think they're doing the right things. And I think that's one of the, the measures of it. I think that's one of the indicators of it. And I think it's important to like, are people talking about it? Are the press talking about it? Are just people talking about it? What are they saying? Like, I think those are things you want to look for. The final one is, did you learn something in the act of making it? And I think that if you're making things and you didn't actually learn anything new, it means you're doing the same thing that you did previously. And that's not healthy. I think you should learn something which, with each thing you make that makes you better, right? That you use that to improve. Even if it was a failure, like you learn something. Mm-hmm. And so I look at those four things and I'm always trying to like look at those. And, you know, if you can get four out of four, that's awesome. I think it's more realistic. You can get three out of four and that's okay. If you get two out of four, you really need to stop and like go, okay, what, you know, what's going on here, right? So if you made something that gets talked about, but you're not proud of it, you didn't learn anything, I think that's not a good thing to be continuously doing, right? Okay. Um, I, I just think it's not good for your soul. <laughs> an even more subjective metric. I like it. Well, I, but, but, I, but I think that, that I'm really talking about an individual, yeah. like assessing the things they're doing. And I think that those are just very personal and, and intimate. This next clip is um, from Wilson Miner, episode 55. He actually did a couple of different episodes, but in episode 55, Wilson talks a lot about the environment that he thrives in um, as far as a career goes and finding that. And I thought it really was interesting because we've all had those shitty jobs that we just hated. I know for me it was working in a cubicle with a really low ceiling and fluorescent lights shining down on me from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. with an hour break of lunch. Um, But he goes into this really nice detail of putting together a list of all of those shitty jobs you've had from start to where you are now and then figuring out what the commonality is between what you really enjoyed from that job and what you really did not enjoy from that job. So you're not only focusing on the positive side of every experience, but you're also trying to like navigate away from all of those like negative experiences you had and, and what you hated about things. So I think you'll enjoy this clip. Yeah, I think I was in the middle of that phase of like forcing myself not to be so anxious about the uncertainty of not having a like a plan um, to just jump into whatever was right in front of me. And like that was really hard for me. But I think I was in that kind of in that state then of like, I don't know, like I want to do this, this or that, you know, figuring out like what was important to me uh, about, you know, the next stage of, of a job or career. Like I'm going to devote a lot of time and energy to this and, um, actually having a chance to think about it and evaluate, you know, what are the characteristics of a job that's, you know, motivating and interesting to me? What are the like basic characteristics of like a workplace or an environment, like out of all the jobs I want? Um, and that was really hard. Like, I don't think, I've ever really done that. It's just sort of like, well, this is where I ended up and this is what it's like. So I hate this and I love this and whatever. So that was a really weird time, but you know, hopefully. It sounds like you worked at some cool places. Like we heard you were hanging out with Pulselli over at Dropbox. Yeah, that was really fun to go back and like see like how far he's gone in that company and like when he even when he started at Dropbox the design team was a lot smaller and like now he's a, you know, leading a team and mm-hmm. and and really 
um, influencing the the design culture at that company. And that was really fun to get to go in and, and see what they're up to. Were you able to define uh, criteria? Like, here's a list of the exact things that I want. Yeah, I'm just always curious to see how people like evaluate different opportunities and like, because there's obviously going to be trade-offs, right? Yeah, actually, um, I have to credit my wife, Laura, for this because sometimes she makes me do things that I'm really uh, grumpy about, um, but I am really appreciative of them afterwards, like leaving the house. Um, <laughs> Why would you do that? Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Apparently some people like it. Um, but she sort of asked me these questions and sort of made, like we did this exercise and, and she made me do this exercise and I was super rude and grumpy about it. Like, I don't want to do this. This is a waste of time. And then I, it really crystallized this stuff for me. And she basically said, okay, write down all the jobs that you've ever had, you know, in chronological order, starting from you know, mowing lawns um, and suburban 110 degree heat in Kansas um, and write a, write down like, a limited number, but write down the, the things that you liked about that job and then write down the opposite of the things that you didn't like about that job. So if you didn't like something like, you know, you were in a really um, negative work environment or something, then just write down the opposite of that, you know, like positive, you know, attitude from among coworkers or, you know, like something like that. Mm -hmm. Just write down and you end up with, this huge list of positive characteristics um, that you personally appreciate about like jobs. Uh, you know, it can be like as basic as like, I like having food, <laughs> you know, like it can be like really basic practical stuff, but there's also things like creative freedom and, and even just the exercise of thinking about like, Oh, I liked that job. Or I liked parts of that job. What is it? What is the characteristic that made like repeatedly made me like that? So that was really valuable. And then like, by the end of that, you have this huge list and you said, okay, now pick 20, like go through the whole list. And the weird thing is like, there were a ton of duplicates that I didn't like when I wrote them down, think like, oh, this is the same thing. But I basically wrote down the same thing, you know, five or six times with different words, you know, for different jobs. And so you start to realize, oh, that's a common theme. Like that's something that I really must care about. Like in terms of that helps me like feel engaged and motivated or, or what or happy in, in a job. So like narrow it down to the things that you think are the most important um, after you remove all the duplicates and like there you have it. Like there's your template. Not that you can go out and say, okay, now am I going to find a job that has like all these 20 characteristics? It's like trying to date, you know, with a like list of all your ideal, you know, here's my type. The world doesn't work that way. But it was really instructive for me to like actually be able to understand and name and identify like, oh, this is something that's important to me and this is something that is less important to me. If I had to choose between th these trade-offs, now I have a way of understanding like what's more or less important to me. I'm going to be miserable if I like go into an environment that has none of these things and all of these things. And no matter how much they pay me or how much other like exciting enticement is making me think about that, maybe I need to think hard about whether or not that's going to be a like positive environment for me. So, well, what's interesting for me is that now the knowing that you went through that exercise is that you ended up somewhere that feels very, very different than a Facebook and RDO and Apple. Yeah. I like, must've been getting it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Like it, if like this, this is the pulling out all the good bits of, of yeah, no, tech, I mean, maybe? that's, I think incidental, um, 
because like those places like Facebook and RDO and Apple and all those places that maybe there are things about those places that I wouldn't choose now, but it doesn't mean that I wouldn't like go back given at that time and do it all over again. Like I really value those experiences and that's how I got that to that list. You know, they're all extracted from those experiences in those places. There wasn't a single one of those that was like all goods or all bads, you know, everything is a mix and it looks different from the outside. But yeah, I had like templates like that of like very naive ways of thinking about it. Like, oh, well, I worked at Apple and this was frustrating. So I must not be able to work at a big company, you know, like I must not be able to handle that environment. And I think that can be really limiting when all you have is that very surface level, like grouping to say, well, I'll never be able to be successful in this kind of environment. And the longer your career goes on, I feel like the more of those things like start to add up and then like you have this very particular environment that you feel like you can be effective in. It was actually kind of freeing to think about as long as I can find a way to like combine enough of these things, I could work anywhere. You know, I could be motivated and excited about working anywhere. And I think that more than any particular characteristic was what gave me the confidence to choose something that was farther afield from what I was used to. So I was able to take more risk in terms of choosing something that didn't fit the template of just what I had been doing before. This next clip is from episode seven with Cap Watkins, which was one of my favorites, especially early on. Like Brian was in Shanghai. We couldn't get Skype to work. So Brian had to turn off the video on it. He was under a blanket in a hotel room, I think, with yeah. like terrible Wi-Fi. Trying to be quiet. <laughs> trying to make it work. Cap actually went and bought a microphone just for us. I, I think I was recording at five in the morning. Yeah. It was, so if I sound tired, I was tired. <laughs> it was really a weird place to be. But uh, Cap right away was like super into it and he came at it with pretty much everything he had and gave us as much as he could and that was really awesome especially on the management stuff uh, which is something i had especially just started thinking about like around episode two i took on a new job and i knew that i was going to have to be managing and cap gave me so much awesome free advice just out of the goodness of his heart this was like the start of it this is how we got to know him a little bit and it's been awesome so this clip is specifically about management advice for designers, and it was super helpful for me. Hopefully, it is for you too. And uh, like, there's probably a reason a lot of people come from the outside. Also, a lot of designers like don't ever want to manage anybody. Like, I mean, I talk to folks and like ask them like what they're thinking and like to consider it and just you know roll it around in their heads. And a lot of people come back and they're just like, no way, no thanks. Like, I'm really happy doing design work and like just getting better at that and being a leader um, as a designer. Uh, and I don't ever want to do what you're doing, <laughs> like, which is totally fine and legitimate. And you, you used to say that as well. You didn't want to be a manager and then you ended up being a manager and quite liked it. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, do you have advice for designers that are in that position where they say, oh, I'll, I'll never manage. I'll never do it. Um, what would you say to those people? Yeah. Management advice for designers in general would be like a really awesome thing to get. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I've learned in my life not to ever say I'm never going to do anything because I wind up doing it. Like when I was working in startups in San Francisco, I told I would always say like I'm never going to work at a big company. Like that seems terrible. I would never do that. And then I worked at Amazon, and then at Amazon and like everywhere before that, I was like I'll never manage anybody. Like that seems like the worst job in the whole world. Like every manager I've had kind of sucked, which means there must be something to that job that makes it suck. And then went to Etsy and became a design manager. So like I would say just try to be open to all the possibilities. Um, 
or learn that you're going to say never and then you're just going to do it uh, right afterwards like I'm doing. I, I start to like hear myself say I'm never going to do that now and I'm like I write it down and I'm like that's something I'm totally going to wind up doing. What's one of those things? Skydiving I think for sure. Ooh. And now it's, it's funny once I said I wouldn't do it now I'm like kind of like every once in a while I'm like man I should really do that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean my other piece of advice would be like I guess two things. I would say the first thing is don't look at that move. If you decide to try something like that, don't look at it as permanent. Like if you get into it and you realize it's not working for you or like something that you don't actually like to do, that should be okay. Um, and you should like be able to, I mean, if you're in a good place, you should be able to talk to the person that like is your boss or like <clears throat> that you work with and say like, Hey, like I don't, I don't think this is working for me. I'd like to go like, you know, back over horizontal to like, you know, go back to designing. Um, and that should be okay. Like it should be okay to try stuff and then like realize it's not for you. Um, at Etsy, like I tried to find pretty low uh, risk ways of letting people try stuff. So like we would have a summer intern and like a senior designer who might be interested in becoming a manager someday. Like I would be like, well, you're going to have one-on-ones with the in- this intern and you're going to like kind of help them and guide them. And like, and you and I will check in, but this is your way of like kind of trying it out and, like seeing if you like this at all. And maybe you hate it. No big deal. And I think the second thing I would say is like not to look at management as not design because that is literally all it is. Um, like management is like the greatest user experience design problem. Like I've ever had, like your users are like right in front of you all the time. Uh, you meet with them once a week and they tell you everything that's wrong. Unavoidable user research. (laughs) (laughs) It's unavoidable. It's like just constant user research and constant, like, uh, learning about like what people think. And like, I'm constantly surprised in both like good and like not bad ways, but good and interesting ways. And I don't know. It's just, it's really kind of exciting when like you work with someone for a while and you see them like break through a wall or like overcome something that they haven't been able to overcome. Like, and it's like partially because like you've helped them and that's just super satisfying to me. It's like watching, uh, it's like having a user, a usability testing lab where like you watch somebody like completely like watch your design totally tank like over and over and over and like slowly get better. And then all of a sudden, like it's like super smooth and like, it's just like being successful over and over and like that just feels really good and it's the same thing with management. Yeah. Getting getting yeses and consistent positive feedback is the worst thing that can happen. Like you got to have that negative to start from. Right. You mentioned in every single interview I've seen you do uh, the book Managing Humans by Michael Lopp. Yeah, that is I've read that once a year probably at least even before I was a manager like someone <clears throat> someone suggested I read it and uh and I actually found it really interesting from the point of view of uh, someone who was being managed. It's actually a really interesting book. It's uh, got a lot of really some engineering specific, but like actually not so much. Like a lot of it's very like broad advice about how to like absorb pretty chaotic, like pretty chaotic situations, which I found pretty useful. What's been one of the key lessons? I want to, I want to read the book, but like, what's one thing that you've always just came away with anytime you read that? Uh, don't panic. <laughs> Never panic. Or at least, like, don't let them see you panic. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> You can panic in a darker room. There, there have definitely been moments where, like, you know, uh, you're in a one-on-one and someone just, like, unloads something that you had no idea even was a, like, you had no idea was coming, didn't know it was a thing. Uh, and all, and, like, all you can do is just kind of, like, absorb it, like, and just like process it as best you can. Make sure that they know that you understand it and like that you're that you need to think about it. Um, but that you're there to help them. Like it's just like uh I think it's really easy to be reactionary 
And it's really important just not to be like to be as like kind of thoughtful as possible at all times. Um, and that's something that seems to come out in every single interaction. Uh, Michael talks about in that book is like, it's a lot about just being thoughtful all the time. Like no matter what's happening around you, like you're kind of the eye of the storm. Like you need to be that calm place where like everything else is going crazy, but everything's okay right now. Your office is the happy place. Yeah. Or the, a safe place at least. Right. Like, it may, I mean, it's not, I've definitely, it's never, it's not always been completely 100% like, you know, rainbows, but it's like, it's a safe place. Like this is a place that like, it's going to be okay. The next clip I pulled was from our episode with Jeff Tehan. We'd been wanting to talk with him for forever. So it was really cool to finally get him on the show. Uh, this clip particularly is important for me because he's talking about getting work as, as an agency and the hustle that's involved. And Working his ass off. The uncertainty of it. And I think it's important because from the outside, Tehan and Lax was like this castle upon a hill, like this perfect agency doing all this work. And he just talks about how they were honest and scared and were oftentimes unsure of if they were going to survive. Uh, that was so cool to hear just the honesty of it. It's somehow reassuring to know that people you put up on a pedestal are kind of still having the same insecurities you are. I don't know. It was rad. So yeah, this is a short clip from episode 38 with Jeff Tehan. Hope you enjoy. The thing that always impressed me about um, the work you guys were putting out was the the case studies after the fact. So like the one with Medium, of course, stands out as just being like this amazing deep dive into your process. Right. Why did you guys start doing those in the first place? Um, <clears throat> so uh, lots of people to credit here. Um, I think, uh, first of all, I think we started to realize that we had done a lot of things to try and market ourselves, right? How do we get the fish to jump in the boat, right? Because going out there, hiring like new business people to try and go convince them, we had had some challenges with that. Um, some some mixed success. It's not an easy game. And uh, and it's a lot of like right time, right place. And do these when, I, when these people are calling and reaching out, uh, do they have a project at hand? And so we were, we really struggled with what to do, um, to understand how the how we're going to get work for Tien and Lax. So we had some success with whenever we did something that was kind of more for our industry, it seemed to, and this is not quantifiable, but it always just felt a little bit better. It felt like, you know, we were getting more traction, we were getting more PR, and we felt like that couldn't be a bad thing. Well, everyone in the industry adored you guys, <laughs> right? Like you guys were making all many of the best tools for us, right. which was incredible. Mm-hmm. Cool. Is what is? I always wondered if it was the kind of not knowing what's in six to eight weeks that yeah. led to that kind of creation and the hyperlapse stuff and all of that. Those crazy projects you guys did—it's like <laughs> mad science in there. Yeah. So I'll get back to that. Remind me of that yes. one. So the uh, so uh, on the why did we do the the ultra long guitar solo uh, ask <laughs> um, uh, case studies. So we started to, we had this theory that perhaps our clients were changing, right? Perhaps we didn't need to be trying to talk to CMOs in this very sort of, you know, um, fabricated way where it's like we have challenges, we have solutions, we have results, and no one really challenged the way that you present your work that way. Um, but we said, well, if we're, we know as designers what we want to read, Right. If if and we 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 had this hypothesis that perhaps our clients were more like us, our clients were the designers. 
that there will be some leaders who value design because it was becoming a thing, that designers would see our work and respect the, the detail and the honest nature and maybe tell their managers if they, if they needed to hire somebody. And, um, and, and so John said, all right, well, let's figure out how to tell a really good story. Cause that's what this is about, right? It's still like, we just can't, even though we want to give detail, we want to be open and honest. And we know that, you know, these stories are essentially, we're writing them for ourselves. Um, we still have to figure out how to be really good storytellers. So he, um, he did a lot of research, he did a lot of reading and he came up with a framework um, that was originally like 21 steps of telling a story and he broke it down. We kind of um, whittled it down into five. Um, you're going to ask me what they are and I'm not going to remember what they are. Um, so you're going to have to have him on the show. See what I did there? Uh-huh. <laughs> so you've got the hook up there. <laughs> <laughs> I may know somebody. Uh, he actually, uh, he actually great, gave a great presentation on storytelling at, um, at a dog at, conference at, 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 <laughs> at Facebook, at Facebook. Um, so anyways, that's how it, that's how that came to be. And it really just, it helped us frame up how to write these really long stories. And we were really, we were really open and honest about them. Like we didn't reveal, like we didn't, we, we rarely revealed anything that was, would have been considered like secret. We could have told much better stories. We could have, we had like lots of other things we could have, we could have revealed that probably would have been that much better, but obviously um, we can only show and share so much, but the clients all got to approve those. So it was all pretty legit and some were more open than others. Right. So the stories that I feel um, got better traction and I can prove it <laughs> through analytics were the ones where we were able to really be open and honest. That's cool. Which which ones were your favorite? I'm not telling you that. Not which one was your favorite? <laughs> my favorite. Analytics aside, ooh, my favorite. Uh, the medium one's pretty good. It's but it's it, that one's like near and dear to my heart because it was a lot of my life for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also really liked. Uh, I also really liked the prismatic one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're kind of related. Both projects I worked on. I mean, I think I I like the ones that I worked on because I was able to really like put everything that I was into those things. Well, I'm curious about how you decided to go that route because for medium, you actually came here and worked here for months, right? Yeah. For, uh, I did uh, in 2012, I did 103 nights in a hotel. Wow. (laughs) Um, it was, it was actually, it was broken out over two years in 2011. We did some prototyping work for them. Um, for, we did that remotely. I think we did like 60 days or something. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe two months, uh, two months. months. Yeah. Anyways, two or three months. And, uh, and then, uh, in, they basically took down that prototype stuff. We never really heard from them again. We were like, boy, I don't even know if they really, did they like it? Maybe that's why we're not hearing from it. Maybe they didn't really jive with this stuff. And anyways, we got a call back, I think probably like April or May of, uh, 2012, and we wanted to figure out a way that we could do the best possible work. And, um, and that was, I think, another thing of like client service model um, where it's like you can't product design is it's tough. It, like it, re- it requires a lot of in-person collaboration, especially mm-hmm. if you're building something um, that, that is being built by other people or with other people. All right, this next clip is one of my favorite. We we ended up running into John Gold at a Google meetup. We were talking to Saleo, and he just randomly comes up, and I'm like, I don't know who this guy is, but he has like a pendant on. And I was like, immediately, like, this guy is crazy. What is going on? 
He's awesome. John Gold is the best. We ended up hanging out with him a lot. many, many times in San Francisco. And it's been the best. He's pretty great. He also j- surfed for the first oh, time. Oh, yeah. The, the, day, the day before he left back before to, he to, to the UK. Before he had to leave, yeah. You yeah. got to witness that, sir. It was pretty rad. Yeah, we were in New you York, and, and Sarah sent me pictures. She's like, I got John Gold to go out surfing. Yeah. <laughs> he shreds some gnar. <laughs> <laughs> so what's this clip so, about? So one of the most common questions we get is about functional CSS and why it's useful. And he sums it up really cleanly. Bonus points for being the time that I learned what immutable meant, and now I have a podcast called that. So, thank you, John. Yeah, thank Spec Fam for life. Uh, <laughs> it's a great clip. You should check it out. Let's talk about some other rules because I was just reading your functional CSS post. You have strong opinions about ca- the cascade, about M's, uh, about using lots and lots of class names instead of uh, ooks is what you're saying instead of that. Um, or smacks. Or, or smacks, yeah. Mm-hmm. So can you just share like a little bit about your approach to CSS and programming, like when you're prototyping through things? Yeah, so most of the time I steal all of my CSS opinions from Brent Jackson, um, the guy who wrote base CSS, and Adam Morse who wrote uh, Tachyons. I, I can't Tachyons. Tachyons. I don't know how to pronounce that word. He's uh, Murmurs. Murmurs, 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 underscore that dude. Um, I get frustrated with CSS when you run into specificity. Specific. Specificity. I can't say that either. <laughs> can, we, can we just have like a list of words that you pronounce me? Sure. <laughs> I got okay. you. Hold up note cards. <laughs> I think a lot of the time writing CSS, you're fighting against CSS. You're using a framework. I was using one recently that is quite popular that I'm not going to name because not Bootstrap. Um, Bootstrap's rad. Um, it's a very popular framework though that I had to use because of a client and um, I spent all of my time like trying to overwrite things or, you know, the font, the font size of the margin or whatever it was, was wrong because of a specific blah, blah, blah issue or because there was like an M somewhere that was like being a multiplier that was, you know, getting in the way of me just saying what I wanted and getting it back. So I think the cascade in CSS, like it was a good idea when CSS was a document language, but as a programming model, like imagine writing JavaScript and, you know, you're saying var x equals 10, whatever, and then running the code and it being like, actually, you know what, couldn't be bothered to do 10. I think actually it should be five. And you're like, dude, what's going on? Like, I, I want this guy to be 10. Um, I think CSS suffers from that, like just from a lack of um, precision between your thoughts as a designer and what you get out of it. So I think like the the approach that base and tachyons are taking is really smart. Um, it borrows, I, d- I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I've realized that it borrows concepts from functional programming. So if you're into underscore or checking out closure or something like that, there are um, ideas that can be brought back into CSS. There's this one idea in functional programming called immutability, which is basically if you say something is one thing, you can't change it to something else later. So I kind of oh, like... That's th- what immutability means. Smart ass. No, I actually didn't know. Oh. <laughs> I've been waiting for someone to explain it to me. I this is the best. Now I have it recorded. <laughs> I feel like that's basically what it is. So you okay. know in CSS, generally, you might say margin bottom equals 10 pixels. And then somewhere else, you've got another class that targets the same thing. And you're like, actually, margin bottom equals 8 pixels. And then another place, you're like, actually, if this class is there, margin bottom equals 25 pixels, whatever. You're redefining margin bottom three times. I like the idea of, for example, in base CSS, just having, having one class that you apply saying margin bottom equals this. And it's just that. And you can always, you know, you look at the class list for the element and you're like, oh, margin bottom must be this. That's a, maybe a specific example. I don't know. But um, I just like the idea that things are what you, what you want them to be. And you don't have to worry about things not, you know, not being correct. Are you doing any exploration into like writing CSS in JavaScript with React? 
I do I do a mix. So I think base CSS is fantastic for prototyping. I use that for a lot of, you know, hacking and making shit really quickly. I also use it a lot for layout. But then I found when building applications, when there's style that's being created as a function of the data. So this slider is over here, that slider is over there. Or I don't know, it, I think in like complex, like rich applications, there's a lot of style which is um, kind of determined based on the data. That stuff's really nice to calculate in JavaScript. It's, you know, design is all rules based. Sometimes that, those rules come from data that you don't have when you're sitting there, like writing the CSS file. You know, it comes from a AJAX request or it comes from whatever it might be. So I'm using React style a lot and really just kind of using whatever's appropriate. I think there's, I think there's a lot of interesting ideas in CSS right now. Um, Ooks was great, but I think since React, there's been like a real flourishing of ideas. Um, Glenn Madden posted a post on the internet about um, interoperable. I can't say words. Inter- interruptible. Inter- interoperable. Inter- interoperable. Interoperable. Yeah, yeah. Why do people use complicated words? I don't know. I, yeah, interoperable CSS. Um, a couple of weeks ago, and that was really interesting. Like seeing CSS as a kind of living, breathing thing that you can import and require and you know, pass around to different things. Um, you know, making CSS modular rather than just a 4,000 line file that you just bosh at the end of your HTML file. So I, I don't know what's going to win. Um, that functional CSS post I wrote, it might be completely wrong. That's, it's just my kind of current thinking. And I think generally I'm just open to new ideas. We keep having lots and lots and lots of ideas, then hopefully we'll get to it. Eventually we'll get something, right? We'll get something, yeah. And it's more interesting than doing the same thing all the time. I, I, that is correct. I don't think CSS is done. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think we've figured it out yet. And I don't think, I don't think the new stuff that we've been writing in the past six months, I don't think that's figured it out yet. I don't think that's the end state of CSS. It's still new and it's still young. I um, just want to keep exploring and keep, you know, keep on searching out good ideas. Uh, liked in your bio, you said you don't define yourself as either like a designer or developer. I did for a while. Um, the past five years, I guess it's some weird existential thing where I'll be writing more and more code and then I'll be like, but I'm a designer because I like, I, I like the way that designer sounds. Or I liked it. <laughs> I was like, you know, it was like really important for me to think of myself as, as, as a designer. And I'm like, Actually, I'm just writing hella code now. Um, <laughs> I I don't know. I've just given up caring. Like I just I just do my thing, and whatever words you want to use to describe that, like I just I just don't care. Fair like I, do, I just want to make cool things with pixels and code and stuff. There you go. Mm. I like that approach. Making cool things with pixels is legit. But I mean, I guess I've always kind of thought of design going further than um, just just the pixels. Like. Feel like a lot of people think it's just making pretty pictures, but if you think about like an industrial designer, they also do the manufacturing, right? Like they're they're very involved, at least in the initial phase, and then they hand it off. I, I don't think that design should stop before the thing is being built. That oh god, no, no, so not little sense to me. So to me, if you're doing API design or if you're writing JavaScript, whatever, to me that's design. And then you're like, design is everything. And then someone's like, well, I don't know, that's kind of actually just backend engineering and i'm like yeah but it's design you can get into these fights about what is and what isn't design i think design's everything some people don't i just i've i'm kind of bored of having like arguments with people who are like oh yeah you're like a developer and i'm like everything's designed dude well i'd love to hear your how you would give advice to someone uh a new person that wants to get into the web design world creating product people ask me you know should i learn to code is this it should designers learn to code what's your response to that I have a two-part response. One is like, 
obviously yes um and and, and like the, the second bit is like just don't worry about it just do what makes you happy it makes me happy coding i like learning new things every day and i get that from coding and i get a lot out of being able to think of things and realize them straight away and like come up with like crazy animations or whatever i want to do if you really don't like coding like just just don't it's fine don't worry about it there are still jobs for people who can't code there always will be So this next clip comes from Sahil of India's episode number 53, uh, where he talks about outrunning his self-doubt. And this one really hit home for me because for a while there, I was writing some medium posts. I've been a little off of it for a bit, but um, I went through something very similar to what he talks about, where he just like kept writing articles and going from there. And he would just put keep like shipping small and doing small things and iterating from there and which is a really cool episode. Uh, you don't realize that it doesn't have to be perfect when you ship it. It can change. It can iterate. It's okay for it not to be 100% when it goes out. Just ship it and iterate from there. It's a cool It's a cool episode. I think you guys will like it. It's funny you talk about fame because you got a lot of attention when you were 18, right? Yeah. That's when... That was, the, that was like the, the inflection point, yeah. I guess. Can we was... talk about... Or could you tell that story of why that was an inflection point yeah i mean the biggest thing i did i mean the biggest thing i did was like i i started blogging and tweeting and using hacker news all at the same time with a very like core intent of like being someone in the community that had some ounce of respect so i grew up in singapore and then i moved to la to go to school and to me that was like oh i'm in california i'm like relatively close to people that make things when I was in Singapore, there was no point in like having a reputation because I couldn't really, you know, use that to like grab coffee with people and learn more stuff because I was the only person in Singapore, it felt like at the time that cared about, you know, Objective C or, you know, the iPhone SDK or anything like that. But when I moved to the US, I was like, okay, this is like, I'm going to start doing this. So yeah, so I just started blogging and, you know, putting comments on Hacker News and just like, just with no real intent besides like, I just wanted to gain respect from the people that I had respect for. And I just did that. I was in school, so I had a bunch of time. That led to offers from companies, you know, asking for me to like help out on some project, one of which was Pinterest, which I ended up joining full time, making their iPhone app and doing a bunch of design for them as well. But it all started because I was just like putting myself in like random thoughts that I had out there. You know, I would like be walking somewhere and have this idea that like math has some relation to this idea of like innovation or like iterative development. And I would just like write a three paragraph post on it, put on Hacker News and it would, you know, get on the front page and people would be like, oh, this is like an interesting, weird way to think about this. That's kind of how it started. So Brendan and I have each talked about wanting to like blog more. And I think sometimes it's easy to get stuck in like this fear of I have this thought, but I don't want to put it out there. A, because I don't want to be wrong. Uh, B, because I might change my mind on it in the future. So like, how did you think about that when you were doing stuff? Like, did you ever have that fear of, I don't know, putting out something that you weren't going to be proud of later? And it sounds like you got over it if, if that's the case, but how did you go about that? Yeah. I mean, I've read more recently, read some of the stuff that I wrote back then. And there's totally things that I think are stupid, you know, and hopefully I'm not being judged for things I wrote like five years ago or something. You um, are. Or, it's the internet. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. We all know. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think at that point I was just so... I, I, there was like probably some sense of like euphoria where I could like write something and like a bunch of people I knew were going to read it 
And that value of that was so much higher than like managing any reputation I had before that, that I was just like churning through stuff. And there's a, a really good quote I read recently by this guy who basically says in this Stephen King in his book on writing called On Writing. And his, his recommendation for people that want to get into writing, you know, kind of like get over this fear of like, is it wrong or not that great is just do it and like write a lot because it is going to suck. And like the way it doesn't suck is you do it like 50 times over. Um, but he has this one quote, which is you basically need to be moving fast enough to outrun your self-doubt, which I thought was like a really interesting way to think about it. And, you know, kind of to tie it back into startups, like, you know, it's like Facebook's move fast and break things. You just have to move really fast. If you're moving fast enough, like you don't, you don't give yourself the time to like even say, well, should I be doing this or not? You just keep going and put it out there and see what happens. And I think people that are good at doing that and can develop that ability end up being really successful. Like if, if J.K. Rowling wrote seven books that were terrible and then wrote Harry Potter, I don't think that matters. Like no one's going to be like, oh, Harry Potter's not nearly as good because like her old stuff. Is she's shit. kind <laughs> of a hack. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great way to think about it. But I think people, especially artists and creators, have this idea that people do that, that people say this person is as good as the average output. And that's not how it works. People are basically judged on the best thing they ever did, right? Like no one judges Steve Jobs for Next or the Newton. Uh, or people do, but it doesn't matter. I think he came back and killed the Newton. <laughs> I think that's or, for good oh, reason. Well, <laughs> this sounds like sort of a fundamental problem then that you're trying to address at Gumroad. If you're wanting more creators to like start selling their stuff is addressing sort of that starting up fear, right? Yeah. So we, we yeah, we did this thing called the Small Product Lab, yeah, right. which we talked a little bit about. Is that available online, by the way? Yeah, just gumroad.com slash smallproductlab. Cool. No dashes or anything. The messaging around that is like start small. Mm-hmm. This is like 10 days of your life in which you're spending some amount of time working to a launch of a product, but pick something tiny. Yeah. Because your goal is not the product. Your goal is to launch something. Just have it out there. And it turns out like people will do something and then they'll make 10 grand. (laughs) And it's insane. And the products are super high quality because they're always way too high quality. Because anyone who's a creator, it's going to probably ship too late anyways and put too much effort in. And so like the bias is always like ship earlier, ship sooner because... And, and the, the minute you do that, the minute you frame the goal around shipping and not a quality product, because you can guarantee the quality product because these people will do that regardless. So like get them to focus more on getting something out there and getting started. And so we use the term start, start small, mm-hmm. which worked really well because it's just like a very clear, is this small? And you look at like a 17 page short story and you're like, okay, that's pretty small. And then you look at like a 200 page novel and you're like, that's not. And then also the time, the fact that like in 10 days you're launching this thing forces you to pick something that you know you can get done before that. And that's like the best thing that I ever learned. Like most of my blog posts were like 15, 20 minutes of me just like writing a train of thought, going to the bathroom, coming back, doing some editing and proofreading and then hitting publish. And I never would do more than that ever. Does that mindset translate to how you're building Gumroad or are you guys at the point now where you have to think a little bit bigger and don't move quite as fast? We definitely don't move quite as fast. Um, and I think that's fine. You know, that's a co- as long as it's a conscious decision, just like I don't think Facebook is moving as fast as they were, you know, five, 10 years ago, because you have more to lose when you make a mistake. But I also think that you should still be moving uncomfortably fast. Like it should always be uncomfortable. I think part of moving fast and breaking things, I think like the part of that's missing from that is moving fast and fixing things. And typically like the assumption is if you can move fast and break things, you can probably also move faster, faster because you have the urgency to actually fix the things that you broke. And I've, I'm still, I think quite good at being like, Hey, let's ship this product 
definitely test it, make sure there's no bugs, write some good tests for it, but put it out there and then react to it. Don't polish too soon. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we've learned recently is that you can like get something out there and then launch it. And then those things can be actually separate events. And so a lot of people, they really care about the quality of a product when it launches, not necessarily when it ships. And so what we started doing more recently is we'll launch or we'll ship a feature and then we'll basically turn it on for certain people or turn it on even at some points for everybody and then wait one or two weeks because we have, you know, some editorial cycle to actually talk about the feature publicly and Mm -hmm. get, you know, that's when like there's like, a you know, it's frozen in time, right? Because there's a screenshot on the blog of how that feature looks. And so the more you can kind of do ahead of that time uh, to like refine the feature, the better off you are. And also it makes people feel more comfortable with putting something out there that isn't necessarily perfect because you know you have a week or two to kind of react yeah, you to don't, feedback. You don't have to blog about it the day that it goes on the internet. Yeah, and almost always you when you do that, it's not good. Like things are going to go wrong. Like if if you deploy and then write the you know and then hit publish on the blog post, it's I don't, I don't can't think of very many situations in which that went totally smooth. <laughs> yeah, you're like oh well this is broken now because or you know we didn't test it with this full production data or like oh we saw this 500 or whatever like yeah it things always go wrong no no plan survives contact with the enemy and so you might as well like push it out there and you know one of the nice things about having like a lot of this non-product stuff is like we have a cycle of like, we know the next basically six weeks of content that's going to go out on our blog. So we can say, okay, well this is done, but like we don't need to actually talk about it until this date. And it gives us a little bit more flexibility on that front, but it's still a struggle. I think it's so easy to default, especially as your company does better and better, like to not move as fast because you're growing regardless. Your incremental improvements of the product aren't driving growth immediately, but it's, I think it's something that you have to fight Mm -hmm. because I think, it's one of those things that like you don't really notice it as it slows you down, but then like half a year later, you haven't shipped anything in, in months. Uh, so this episode is actually the one that comes right after Sawhills. In number 54, it's called Cute Puppy Syndrome with Jacob Thornton, aka At Fat, one of my favorite people. So, so funny. And he's just, it was constantly hilarious throughout this entire thing. I don't think I've laughed that hard in a long time. Yeah, I while I was editing this, I think I scared my dog Roxy because she's my co-producer. Um, I don't think that's how that works. She's uh, not on the payroll. <laughs> I was, uh, whatever. I was... Uh, editing the episode and like mid episode editing I just like burst out laughing because he was so ridiculous uh, and she like looks up at me and gets really like cautious and scared and I'm like it's okay it's all good but not only was he funny but like he said a lot of really smart stuff um, especially he has very strong opinions on CSS and like open source and so this is uh, kind of a section on uh, CSS and open source mainly focused on his talks that he did at uh, Code Genius and then another conference in paris and yeah it's so much fun i've watched both talks we'll put them both in the show notes we put them in both in the show notes of the episode and it was so so funny so you should definitely go check them out funny plus smart is a good thing definitely enjoy the clip you have very strong opinions on css yeah you just did a talk on css <laughs> i did i came out of my talk retirement did a talk it's wild why did you come out of retirement for this and then we'll get into it's like the css jordan wearing the four five yeah 
What's wow. the reason? <laughs> I was going to go like Jay-Z coming out of retirement, but I'll take Jordan. Jay-Z never intended to stay retired. Yeah, same. Me, I don't know. Least, I'm Jay-Z, actually. At least you're surprised. modest about it, Jesus. Yeah, I know. Gosh. Yeah, uh, guys, I'm Jay-Z, not Jordan. Yeah, s- settle down. <laughs> I need a shoe line first. <laughs> gosh. Okay, so you came out of talk retirement. Yeah. What What was so important that, that you had to do that? Uh. I came out of talk retirement to talk at Code Genius. Um, I don't know. I just had this, like, everyone was like, oh, you're going to, like, like associate with those people? And I was like, I don't know. But they were all so cool and, like, really nice. So I'm into them. Shout out Genius, Rap Genius. So, yeah, I hadn't given a talk for about two years. Um, I hadn't really, like obsessed about anything in the same way I'd obsessed about open source for a while. And I kind of needed to like take a step away from conferences and stuff and kind of like feel the pain of something (laughs) to like really have something to talk about and nothing in development is more painful than CSS. Uh, In particular, nothing is more painful in development than working with other C- uh, with other engineers on CSS also. Um, it's fucking impossible, actually. I Surprise. just wrapped a, product, a project with where I was doing that. Oh, my God. Yeah. The worst. Yeah. Like, you can kind of write saying CSS if you're the only one, and it's like your ivory tower, and you know where everything is, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's that one bizarre shit. Don't worry about that. I know about that. Just mm-hmm. don't touch it. Mm-hmm. That's the only way. Like, everyone thinks they have all these, like, oh, yeah, like, object-oriented CSS, like, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, nah, man, that shit's not going to work. It's just impossible. And so... CSS just in general is impossible? Yeah. (laughs) Start over. Pick a different technology, (laughs) yeah. No, it's not that it's impossible. Uh, It's just, it's impossible to to do in a way that you can come back to ever and be like, oh, yo, that makes a lot of sense. Like, Mm -hmm. sometimes I write, like, for example, uh, we were talking about bootstrap themes. I don't think, I think it was before we started recording, but um, we started this new project on bootstrap. It's going to be like these themes thing. And I was, I was writing this like really simple Shopify app type thing. And so I was writing all the CSS from scratch and I was like, the CSS is so simple. It's great. This is the best CSS I've written. That's what I say to myself every time I write CSS (laughs) is I was like, Ooh, we did it again. Best CSS I've ever written. Mm -hmm. And then like weeks Weeks later, I'm like, what? Like, how do I, where's that thing at? Mm-hmm. Oh, I have no idea. And then you get, you get all these different browsers. I know the browsers are like radically different. I've been spoiled because like companies like Twitter and Medium like don't give a fuck about browsers. I don't know where Facebook's at um, or where you guys are at, but Facebook gives a fuck about every browser. Yeah. I just go auto prefix or last two and that's it. Respect. That's kind of like what, where we were at. And we were just like, you know, charge it to the game if it doesn't work. I was like, it's it's so easy to get on the last two. Yeah. If you can't do that. Yeah. Hmm. But then like, uh, I spent, there, there's this thing, uh, they're called, they're, it's like, I wanted to add background to, uh, like say a paragraph, right? A background color. But I wanted the sides to be padding and I wanted it to wrap, right? Surprise, it's impossible to do. Almost impossible. And so I spent like a week trying to get it to, it out. to work in like <laughs> I9. Yeah. With like 14 elements that are necessary. Like a, not really that bad, but like pretty intense. Yeah. CSS. So all this sort of bubbled up and B 
became the talk in your mind cascade well shit show what really happened was i i think i have this like mythos that i'm like a css person because i work on bootstrap and i i think i'm like pretty good at css but i don't even really do a lot of the css on bootstrap it's like 99% mark and like is like a little entourage it's i'm just like doing javascript mostly but when I was at Medium, I was by far the, like the strongest CSS person. So they're like, "Oh, you're in charge of the CSS. Make sure our CSS is the best in the world." That's what they like want all the for their shit. So like, oh, like is, is this the best way to write a modal? Like the best in the world? And you're like, oh, man, I don't know. It's a modal pops up. Yeah, pops up. Hey, shout out me. If it pops up, it's probably <laughs> yeah. Um. So where were we? I don't know. I was writing CSS with people. Oh, it's really hard. I was like constantly stressing out about like. How can I like make this group of people like elevate their skills? Like, because that's really what the, like a lot of engineering leadership and other stuff ends up being is like elevating the work of people around you. And I feel like also just like creating a balanced team. Like, not everyone was as strong at CSS as me. So I was like constantly, you can't just be like, I'm going to write all the CSS. That's what we tried at Twitter actually with Mark and Dave. They wrote all the CSS. Um, and then Dave was like, that's impossible. I, Dave got burned out, and then it was just Mark. Like Mark wrote all the CSS for Twitter.com. Uh, obviously, not very very scalable. Um, I think they're actually falling into that. It seems like maybe a similar thing, but now Nicholas is like rewriting everything. Um, Gallagher again, yeah. But we'll see. I'm sure they have other people. Hopefully, but I understand also why they fall into that because it's like really hard to get people to write CSS together. So, although Facebook is kind of doing some interesting shit there. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, I just tried a bunch of different things, like everything I could possibly do to try to like elevate people's CSS. And it, it's it's kind of like one of those like you know like three steps forward, two steps back kind of thing over and over. So you're like getting progress, kind of, and you think you're getting a lot of progress, and it's like a little progress, and it just kind of like builds up over time. And then I wrote a um, a medium post about it. Uh, I um. I'd actually written a chapter for a book called Beautiful JavaScript, uh, like about two years ago. So I like I was blogging a lot on byfat.xxx, and then I started working at Medium, and then I was like, it's not really chill to keep, you know, writing on Subtle because I work at Medium now, and that's kind of taboo. I gave that last talk, and then uh, Anton um, Value of on the internet, he's like a popular JavaScript guy was working on this book called Beautiful JavaScript. And I was like, that sounds cool. And it's basically about people's different like takes on what beautiful JavaScript is. And I was like, wow, I like love that topic a lot, like beautiful code. Um, and I was like, I have a lot to say about that. And so for like a month or two, I just like really hunkered down and wrote more than I probably ever written ever. Um, and had editors like tear my stuff apart. And I came up with <laughs> this chapter, which is called how to draw a bunny. It's pretty in hindsight, not the best chapter, but at the time I thought it was really great. Um, anyways, so I'd written that and then I just could get super burnt out on writing. So I was like done with talking and then done with writing. And so I like never blogged again. So after I did that basically until this CSS post, which was basically done because we had these stupid, sorry, I shouldn't say that. That's not very nice. We had these things which I like failed to find value in at Medium called OKRs, objective key results, like set a goal and then achieve them. I always kind of feel like that's silly. Anyway, so I had some like goal that was like, I don't know, right? CSS better than everyone else. And then they were like, okay, like one step in like, 
being better than everyone. It was some like sardonic OKR that I wrote that was just like, I am the best. I will never be surmounted at CSS. And like part of me doing that was like telling everyone how what I was doing was way, way better than what they were doing. So I was like, I have to write a medium post, obviously. That's where people <laughs> tell people they're better than them. Um, <laughs> so oh jaded. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I wrote this post, uh, which was like, it was really more, I mean, it seems like I'm like really into myself, but really underneath it, it's like this deep hatred. So it's like this yourself or CSS. It's this huge self-effacing like hate of myself. But uh, you want to talk about it? Yeah, let's get into it. tears. <laughs> uh, so if you work through the um, the post, it's really about how we just like failed to make good CSS over and over and over and over and over again. And then the title is like our CSS is pretty fun good though. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so that had me thinking a lot about it and it had me thinking like, yo, this stuff is just impossible to get uh, good. And Genius had asked if I'd come and give a talk and they're like, oh, it would just be like, you'd be the only one talking. It's not really like a conference conference. And I was like, okay, that's like pretty interesting. And so I was like, all right, fuck it. Like, and I was like quitting. So I was like, fuck it, I got nothing to do. I'm like, oh, that sounds good. And then I, I was actually between giving a talk on, uh, my beautiful JavaScript chapter about how to draw bunny or if I should give a talk on the CSS stuff. But then I decided I was like, I got to figure out like what CSS is like this. It's like such a basic, I'm like really interested in like things that everyone takes as like just objective, like truths in our like community, I guess, or just like, like CSS is what we write is how you make things. It's like bad, but it's like, we just deal with it. I'm like really interested in like the history of things like that. And so for for me, that was like a perfect like kind of topic to talk about. So um, so I just fucking geeked out and like my girlfriend put up with it for like a month and a half of me just like slogging through everything on the internet ever written about CSS, mm. including like multiple dissertations, which I re- highly recommend you do not read. Are they available online? Uh, yeah. So uh, Hokum William Lee, who I say, I remember his name because Hulk Hogan which is fucked up, but it sounds just like Hokum Wheelie to me anyways. He uh, is a guy that basically invented CSS, did a whole dissertation on like uh, kind of like CSS, what a cascading language is, the history of it, a lot of it's super fascinating. Um, also the W3C has a lot of like good history. And then most of the stuff though that's like really interesting and, and the conversations are all on the mailing list. Uh, but they're like, I mean, if you've gone through like a mailing list, they're so painful to like slog through. It's like these weird, huge reply threads where people are like trolling each other and like it's really bizarre. I don't know. Um, I guess we'll link to the 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 talk <laughs> anyways, but I'm curious like what do you have ideas for how we can fix oh, some of these problems? Like, no, no, no. So um, <laughs> No, it's completely unconstructive. Yeah. No, so I'm a a literature major. That was what I studied. I didn't study computer scientists. Surprise. I'm not like good at computers. Um, one thing that I learned like really early on uh, was I, I took this critical theory class. Um, and I had this teacher who was like a massive asshole, but like kind of amazing. And I wrote this paper where I was like deconstructing something like um, some like Paris Hilton TV show or something like really ridiculous like a literature major would do. And I like deconstruct it. I say like all the problems with it. And then I say like, this is how you fix all these problems. Uh, and my teacher was like, F. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, F. 
that's pretty harsh. And he's like, your arguments are, I like buy all of your arguments for like why things are bad. But he's like, as soon as I got to like how you're going to fix them, I was like, I just pulls all over this. Like these are terrible fixes also. And I was like, okay. And he's like, you don't have to, you don't have to be the person that like solves every problem. There's just as much value pointing in, pointing out that there's a problem when no one else thinks there's a problem. So like, uh, for example, you don't have to be the person that like solves sexism in the workplace but just pointing out that there's sexism in the workplace there's a lot of value in that and i think both with my open source talk and with my css talk i took a a similar kind of route which was like there's a lot of problems in open source that no one's really talking about and like people are experiencing burnout like almost all my friends that like feel this similar kind of feeling and like struggling with a lot of these things and the same thing with css like people are talking about like you know css is like bad and like kind of joke about it like oh i hate it but they don't really go deeply into like, you know, what, like, what, what is so bad? Like, why is this bad? Like, how did we get here? What, what's going on? Stuff like that. And I hope that basically with this and with the last one, essentially it's, I'm just asking the question in a much better way or like presenting the problem in a much more thorough way so that someone again, way smarter than me can like figure out what's right and fix it. Got it. That was it. That was the end of the episode, our first compilation episode. We have a few more coming uh, again on Wednesday, and then next week we're going to have two more. We hope you enjoyed the clips. We hope you enjoyed the commentary. If you are itching for more podcasts this holiday season, be sure to check out spec.fm. Or not during the holiday season, man. Ever. Go to spec.fm. We've got five podcasts on the network. More coming soon. Big stuff in 2016. We're really excited. Uh, If you are a designer and developer just looking to level up, go to spec.fm. Before we go, huge, huge thank you to the two sponsors that made this episode possible. Thanks so much once again to Wayno. The full service, all singing, all dancing, fast growing, not quite bourgeois, not quite bohemian digital agency doing amazing design work. And they are hiring designers in SF and New York City. They are an amazing agency. We love them and we are so happy to have them supporting the show. To learn more, go to wayno.co, U-E-N-O. Check out their work, read their case studies and click that career links in the header. Tell them we sent you. That career links. That career career links links. and don't worry about my grammar. Thanks so much once again to Wayno for sponsoring the show. Our second sponsor, Dropbox. Dropbox lets you work the way that you want on any file, with any device, from wherever you are, with anyone you choose. You can do all sorts of projects, use whatever tools you want, and you can create cool things. You can check it out and get started at dropbox.com. Thank you once again to Dropbox. And we'll see you on Wednesday with another one of these guys. And me. And more Cerebrus. 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 The three-headed producer that guards hell. The gates. Thank you. The gates of hell? Yeah. What are you going to say, Bryn? There's what dates in audio. I'm trying to make it work. <laughs> the, gains, game. the gains of hell. The gains of hell. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs>